This is Phaedra Cook, editor and publisher of Houston Food Finder, and this is the Houston Food Finder podcast. Thank you for joining me. This is going to be a longer podcast episode than usual. My interviewee is Kevin Floyd, and every time I interview Kevin Floyd, we always end up having just all sorts of things to talk about. We're both intensely interested in the business of hospitality, and this interview is going to cover a lot of ground. If you're interested in the latest in bar technology, you're in the right place. Kevin is getting ready to open Shoot the Moon, a new restaurant and bar in Spring Branch, and it will feature the food of Chef Dax McNear, who Kevin has worked with on and off for at least the past decade. And you'll find, we get into, you know, what all Shoot the Moon has to offer into some overall industry topics. We'll talk about what is it like to open a brand new bar and restaurant in a pandemic. And although it has presented some challenges, in some ways Shoot the Moon is a really great concept for a pandemic and you'll find out more about why later in this podcast. I want to thank our supporting Houston Food Finder readers who make our online publication and this podcast possible. I'd also like to thank some of our sponsors as well as tell you about a couple of special discounts from some of our sponsors. Houston Restaurant Weeks just got extended until the end of September. It's the most usable number of, of days there's ever been. It was extended, as my friend Eric Sandler, Culture Map, reminded me, it's been extended before the year for Hurricane Harvey until the end of September, but there weren't nearly as many usable days because so many restaurants had to be closed due to flooding, loss of electricity, all that. So this is the most number of usable Houston Restaurant Week's days diners will have. So enjoy that. But you can visit the beautiful Rainbow Lodge and take care of their take advantage of their Houston Restaurant Week's menus for lunch, brunch, and dinner. If you, you're in Katy, or you're going to be in or near Katy, go to Malaysian restaurant Fat Eatery, which is also offering Houston Restaurant Week's menus, and I hear it's very popular out there. And we are working with the Perfect Fish which up until very recently never sold to consumers. It only supplied restaurants with high quality fish and meats. The perfect fish now is for consumers to be able to buy those same products for home. And it just added home or office delivery on Fridays. So that's great. And the delivery fee is only $10. The minimum order is only $100. And I don't know about you, but I can spend $100 on meat and fish in no time. And it's great to just, you know, stock up for the next week or two. However, if you are willing to go to, willing and able to go to the warehouse on Richmond Avenue and pick up, there's a discount code you can use to get 15% off your order and no minimum order in that case use code pick up and save 15 and that's a letter in in the middle pick up and save 
15 at the Perfect Fish website, just theperfectfish.com. And that'll get you 15% off your order. And it is between the hours, pickup is between the hours of 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. You can order online. They'll have it ready to go when you get there. Also, Houston Cider Company has a deal for you. If you go to HoustonCiderTX.com and go to the online ordering and order the Core 4 pack, which includes like a sampler pack, cherry, pineapple, ginger, and rosé, as well as their classic dry cider. And go to checkout, and in the comments field, put in the code HFF2020. That's HFF2020. And you will get absolutely free a honey cider and then a random specialty cider. So that's six ciders for the price of four, and the core four pack is only $8. I mean, you can't beat that, and that's a great way to try this Houston area cidery. So thank you to all of our sponsors, and let's go ahead and get into this interview with Kevin Floyd. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Pedro. How are you? I'm good. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being on it to talk about your long-awaited forthcoming bar, Shoot the Moon. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How How is that going? When we first covered the announcement, that was, strangely enough, that was back in September 2019, so it's almost been a year. Yeah. Uh, it's been going, you know, well, but slow, slower than I wanted, uh, slower than I expected. But there's been a lot that's happened uh, since the last time I talked about Shoot the Moon. So, you know, things change. Now, it's been kind of a while since you've been back to the bar scene. What have you been doing in the last couple of years? When I first sold my stake in Underbelly Hospitality, I didn't do much of anything for like several months. You know, I had been active in the, the independent side of the Houston bar and restaurant scene for like almost exactly 10 years. I hadn't really taken a whole lot of time off. In fact, you know, my, my wife has been with me the, the entire time, you know, she and I were dating. We were newly dating. I think we, were, we started dating in like July and I signed the lease on Anvil in like August. And so, you know, she's been with me the entire time. And, you know, she pointed out that in that whole 10-year period, she and I had taken probably a grand total of maybe two weeks of vacation that weren't somehow related to work. And so I really took advantage of the opportunity. So for the first few months, I didn't do much of anything, just spent a lot of time with the family, a lot of time at home, uh, took a few trips, uh, discovered hobbies, because I, I didn't have any hobbies that weren't related to eating and drinking either. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I was actually doing some consulting work for a client who was a friend of a friend that needed some help developing uh, a concept he was working on. And through some of the TBC compliancy research I was doing for him, I came across the TBC position memo 
that uh, outlined their position change on the subject of self-service. And I think the memo had been published like two weeks before I was doing my research. So it was really serendipitous that I happened to be doing this research and come across this, this memo that completely changed the legality of running a self-service operation because self-service had been something I had seen 10 or 11 or 12 years ago uh, in Denver for the first time and was always really interested in it. The, the, my first experience with it, the technology was really cumbersome and not great, and the experience was kind of chunky, but I liked the concept. And I remember coming back from Denver, and I was partners with Bobby at the time, and telling him, hey, I just saw this thing in Denver. It was really cool. We should totally do this. And doing some research on it then, and finding out that it was not practical or legal in Texas to do at that time, so I just kind of put it on the back burner. You know, when the TBC changed the position, then all of a sudden I found myself developing another hospitality concept. As far as you know, is there another self-service bar concept like that in Houston? No, as far as I know, no one else has done, done what we're doing in Houston. I think that there is maybe a couple of, of wine-centric concepts that are in development that are somewhat similar there are some other places in Texas that are somewhat similar, but to the best of my knowledge, there's no other self-service in Houston. And for exactly what Shoot the Moon is going to be, there's not another concept that's exactly like it in the nation as far as I've been able to tell. So Shoot the Moon should be the first self-service bar in Houston. How close are you to being able to open? We are really hopeful that we'll be able to open in October. We have a little bit of capitalization that we have to finish up, but as long as we can get the last of the money that we need all squared away, then we should be good to go because construction is progressing at a decent clip now. Wow, so that's not very far away at all. We're talking maybe month and a half if that if it's the end of October rather than the beginning. Now, like we talked about earlier, Shoot the Moon was announced in September of last year. And, of course, since then, everything's been hit with the, the COVID pandemic. How has that changed your approach or how has that made getting this bar open more difficult? I used to say that, you know, opening a bar or restaurant, period, is one of the most difficult things you can ever do. It's definitely in my life like one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Opening a bar or restaurant during a global pandemic is the most difficult thing that you can do. Uh, the, the things that have changed and the things that hasn't changed. The thing that's changed is it's changed my definition of patience and it's changed our timeline. Part of the reason why we are not open right now has got to do with how much longer everything is the taking during this development process. It's not, not like one huge thing that took a lot longer, but it's just every single thing that we do just takes a little bit longer. It takes a few extra days or a couple extra weeks. And so that's really, really influenced the project a lot. And then raising capital for a hospitality-based project during a time period when the hospitality industry is effectively shut down has also proven to be somewhat challenging. So COVID's affected us like that in terms of project development. But then as far as the project itself goes and the plan for what we're going to do with Shoot the Moon, it's been interesting. It hasn't radically shifted our plan at all. 
I no way had ever anticipated something like COVID happening when I first conceived of the shoot them concept last year. But what I did see was these kind of systemic fundamental issues that were facing the hospitality industry, things like, you know, labor management and things like guest count and, and cost of goods management and things like that. And so one of the, one of the huge drivers for what helped me shape what shoot the moon is going to be was attempting to deal with some of these issues that I saw present in the traditional hospitality model. And now when we look at an environment full of social distancing and limited capacity and and increased to-go volume and uh, increased sanitation needs, a lot of the solutions that I had developed for other problems that were inherent in the traditional model are also the same solutions that we're going to be utilizing to deal with the COVID-related problems that have been presented to us. You know, I was thinking before our interview, I was thinking about how smart self-service is right now. It reduces interactions, and that's exactly what some of the operating standards are right now for trying to reduce the COVID curve. Like one of the one of the you know, small little things that I thought was really interesting, when we were designing the the, the main dining room, we've got the uh, we've got the tap wall and the self service wall running down one side of the space, and then the main dining room is in the middle, and we needed a distance between the self service wall and the first row of tables to allow for this walkway to exist, so that people could have easy access to the self service wall so that people wouldn't clump up on the wall and so that people wouldn't kind of back up into the tables that were near the wall. And we determined that between six and eight feet from the tap wall to the first row of tables was an appropriate distance to be able to manage those issues, which, crazy enough, as we all know, is the appropriate distance that medical professionals have told us people should stay away from each other to prevent the spread. So, we ended up inherently designing the space around a six to eight foot bubble for no COVID related reason. But now it turns out that that, that practical solution also is the solution for the COVID issue. Yeah, that, boy, that worked out well. Now, can you kind of walk me through how this works? Since there aren't other self-service bars in Houston, I think a lot of people probably don't understand, like, how does this work? Sure. So the way we're doing the Shoot the Moon, like I said, is a little bit different than the way I've seen it done in other places, but it's still it's still inherently the same concept. So at Shoot the Moon, what you're going to do, you'll come in the front door, and the front door puts you in the space and puts you automatically going in the right direction towards the counter. And that that walk from the front, from the front door to the counter will take you along the side of the main dining room. When you get to the counter, this is where all of the interaction occurs. In a traditional service model, the guests will interact with a staff member anywhere between eight to 10, possibly 12 times during their entire visit. At Shoot the Moon, you'll interact with a staff member two and possibly three times total. So when you get to the counter, this is when the main thrust of the social interaction and the the bookkeeping, for lack of a better word, happens. The good of counter, you will order your food. You will open a tab. So you can either open a cash tab or open a credit card tab. Your ID will be checked. Your age will be verified. 
and then you will get an access card that is uh, tied back to your tab, and it gives you access to the entire self-service system. And then we are also going to utilize an authorization in the front-end model for credit cards. So at that initial counter visit, you will also authorize the credit card. And we're going away from a tip model, and we're going into a service fee model, which you and I can talk about more in a minute. And so all of the administrative bookkeeping work that normally comes at the end of the visit, which require at least one other interaction, is all being done on the front end. So you leave the counter, your food has been ordered, and you have an access card that allows you access to the system. The self-service wall is very similar to like a draft beer wall at a big draft beer bar. Uh, it's a long wall. It's got a series of caps, uh, and it's got a series of, of touch screens. There's a, a touch screen over every two or three taps. And your access card will allow you to, to open up the taps. So you go to one of the touch screens, you put your access card in the reader, and then those two taps that touch screen controls are now open. And you can you know, read about the product, uh, you can explore the product, and then you can pour yourself as much of the product as you want. There's some TBC limits about over-service, but effectively you can pour as much as you want. And you can pour yourself an ounce, you can pour yourself 10 ounces. And the system is accurate to within a tenth of an ounce. So whatever you pour to yourself is what's going to be charged back to your tab because everything is priced by the ounce. So if you want a taste, you can just pour an ounce. If you want a, a cold glass, you can pour yourself 10 or 12 ounces. And that all goes back to your tab. And then you go to your table and you hang out like you would in any other bar or restaurant. Uh, the food will be brought to you from the kitchen. We're going to utilize a, a near-field Bluetooth tracking system. So you'll be given um, a puck, sort of kind of like the old-school table pagers from back in the day when you sat waiting to get your table out back or whatever. Eventually, we will introduce an app that will do this on your phone. But at first, we're going to do it with just a puck. And that and the the system can track the location of that puck in real time within the space. So wherever you are standing or sitting with that puck, when your food's ready, the food runners are going to know where you are. And they'll bring your food right out to you and drop it off. So that's your second interaction point with the staff. And then um, you can go back to the tap wall as many times as you want within the KBC service limits. You can sample beer, wine, cocktails, spirits. Uh, it's, a, it's effectively a full-service bar. And then when you're done with your visit, since you've already done all the paperwork on the front end, the credit card's already been authorized, the service fee's already been approved, you can just walk out. You drop your card in a box on the way out, or if you've got a cash tab, and you have a cash balance left on your cash tab, you can take that card with you, and it effectively becomes a gift card to be used at the next visit. And you can just walk out. You don't have to check out with anybody or anything else, and then your your time is done. No waiting for somebody to bring you the check. <laughs> nope, nope. There's no, there's no, there's no waiting for someone to bring you the check. There's no standing back in line to close your tab out. There's no sitting at a bar, staring at a, at a draft beer or a bottle of liquor that is only two or three feet away from you that you know that you want and the bartender is ignoring you. You just get up from your table and go pour yourself another drink. It is a hospitality experience that is almost completely controlled by the consumer. 
And how do you prevent people from overserving themselves? The technology, the computer-controlled system that runs the entire self-service system is at the heart of all of those types of questions. So in Texas, the TBC has determined that a guest can only serve themselves two portions before they have to be rechecked by a real human. So the, the thing about TABC is that they want a human involved in the initial age verification process, and they also want a human involved in the overconsumption process. So they define two servings as, or they, TABC defines a serving as 16 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, and two ounces of spirit. And so the system is going to track everything that you're drinking and will and will and will cut you off the minute you hit that service limit. This is where I say that at, at Shoot the Moon you're going to interact with a staff member at least twice and possibly three times. And this is that possible third time. There'll be a staff member that is zoned to kind of work the tap wall and they're there to answer questions or to deal with problems. And so if your card stops working, you turn around the staff members there and you say, hey my card stopped working they can pull up your consumption history and see, oh, you've had your two portions and it's been 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half since you checked in. Okay, you're, you're totally fine. And they can reauthorize your card for two more portions. Or they can see like, oh, you, you just had two shots within 15 minutes and they can reopen your card for a modified portion amount if they need to which is technically speaking exactly the way that any bartender should be handling any guest consumption, period. It's, if anyone's ever taken the KBC um, service classes, they talk about this stuff. How much of that actually happens in practicality? Probably not a whole lot. But yeah, so, so the system itself helps us monitor overconsumption. That's really interesting. So if somebody's going back for that third cocktail and it's only been an hour and a somebody can say, hey, let's slow you down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's the same, like I said, it's the same thing that any responsible bartender should do. And that's not to say that, you know, we have to say, oh, you've had this amount of alcohol within this time period, you can't consume any more, because the TBC doesn't put that kind of restriction on it. What the TBC says is that the service professional has to use their training and their expertise to determine whether or not they can responsibly serve that consumer more alcohol. Yeah, the level it gets someone intoxicated is so dependent on other factors too, like what's your body mass and how old are you and all right. of that. And because so, that access card ties back to their tab, at at that moment, you know that that staff member can also review how much food has been ordered on that tab, or on, how many other access cards are on that tab, thus how many other people are sharing that food. So it really makes it a lot easier for one staff member to monitor the consumption a much larger number of guests because all that information is stored digitally tied back to an access card and is accessible by the staff at any time. Yeah, I mean, and unlike, say, if someone goes to a bar and they've been served by multiple bartenders who don't necessarily know what the other bartenders have served. That sounds like a good system. Now, you'd mentioned that you're not doing a tip-based model. You're doing a service-included model. Is this kind of like what Danny Meyer of Union Hospitality Group was really heavily promoting a couple of years back? Yeah, so no, not completely. So what Danny did was he went what I like to call all the way down. 
which is I actually I honestly personally think that what what Meyer was trying to do is really kind of the best way the whole industry should switch to, but there's some problems with it. But so what he did was he basically eliminated the tipping period, and he paid all of his staff um, a living wage or a better than living wage, and he just increased pricing. And I'm really oversimplifying what he did, but he just increased pricing. And so that way, the, the extra revenue was generated by the establishment to afford that much higher labor cost. That's one extreme way of doing it. The other extreme way of doing it is the current system, which is where you keep prices relatively low. You keep wages to the staff paid by the business relatively low, and you allow the consumer to directly pay the staff member through tips. And so what we're going to do is kind of in the middle of those two systems. What I really wanted to accomplish was the ability to be able to give my staff income security. And this comes from the fact for much of my life up until my early 30s, I paid my bills and lived my life off of tips. And even when I stopped bartending full time in the businesses, because my income, personal income, was directly related to what I could pull off the company in a partnership share, it was still effectively related to being able to make tips in a kind of a stretch way. So the the ability of the volume to generate revenue was always kind of in the foremost of my mind. And so I know what it's like to be a bartender or to be a line cook or a server and not necessarily have income security. You have job security. You know that you always have a job, but you don't really know what you're going to make today or tomorrow. And there's bad days and there's good days. And then I read an article it had to have been like in April or May of 2019 in the Houston Chronicle that talked about what the living wage in the city of Houston was. And they defined living wage based on 40-hour work week, based on your ability to afford transportation, which would be a car, and to afford rent on a one-bedroom apartment in Houston. And that living wage was $21 an hour. And I was like, man... How many employees in the hospitality industry are guaranteed to make $21 an hour? Not a whole lot of them. Line cooks don't usually make that. And servers and bartenders can make that when adjusted for tips, but that's not a guaranteed amount. So I really wanted to find a way to be able to give my employees income security. And I heavily looked at the Danny Meyer model, which I really liked because it was a real simple way. It's like, hey, we increase prices by 20 or 25%, and that increase in prices goes to pay for this increase in labor. And our staff always knows that when they come into the building, when they're on the clock, they're making X number of dollars per hour, whether we're at high volume or low volume. My big concern about that is that I just don't know if the consumer is going to understand why a Lone Star at Shoot the Moon costs 25% 25% more than a Lone Star somewhere else, even though they're still paying the same if they tip on that Lone Star. I just don't know if they were going to be able to handle that. So Yeah, and that really yeah. works against your, your marketing, too. A bunch of people are going on to Yelp or Facebook yep. and going, oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe how expensive this place is because I don't think 
I mean, some consumers are savvy and would understand, but I think you're right, and a lot of people are going to be like, why is this so expensive? I think every consumer is smart enough to understand. I just don't think a lot of consumers are going to are going to connect the dots on their first visit. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, this place pays their staff a living wage. That's why my stuff's more expensive. So I thought I spent a lot of time thinking about this and reading a bunch of articles and looking for other analogs to kind of find inspiration from. And what I really kind of began looking at was the way, this was before COVID, the way that the consumer was already shifting their purchasing habits. You're seeing the rise of Uber Eats delivery and Favor and Instacart and stuff like that. And all of those companies have service fees built in. So you're you're paying for the food, and then you're also optionally tipping your driver, and there's a service fee there. Now, the service fee in those situations is meant to fund the app. But for us, my hope and my expectation is that consumers are, are becoming accustomed to this concept of a service fee existing and that they won't be completely put off by service fee existing at Shoot the Moon. It's technically voluntary. It's going to be automatically added to the tab, but when you're authorizing your tab on the front end, if you want to remove that service fee, you can. If you want to increase it, you can. If you want to decrease it, you can. So it's ultimately still at the consumer's discretion as to whether or not they participate in that service fee. But for us, that service fee is going to go to paying the staff's wages, not to not to funding the company operation. It's interesting that you brought up the living wage because it used to be that if you were someone like a server in fine dining, then the assumption was you were probably making great money. But COVID has hit many people economically, and I worry about the future of fine dining. So being able to guarantee that living wage in more of a casual business is is really interesting because I think those are the ones that will be patronized. Yeah. So this is not, like I said, this is not 100% where I really would like to be, but I do think that it is a great way to start and it's a way for me to kind of gauge the consumer response to this type of method. So we've taken great care on our website to kind of explain what the service fee is and why we've done it. And then also the other secondary of advantage to doing a service fee as opposed to a tip is it eliminates those interaction points. So now you've authorized your credit card, you've taken care of the tipping, and I'm using air quotes here, all at the front end. So you don't have to then at the end of your visit go back and authorize your credit card and, and tip. So by doing the service fee, this flat percentage across the board, it frees the guest up at the end of the experience to be able to just get up and walk out and not have to go back and do the paperwork side of their restaurant visit. So you're going to have beer, wine, spirits, and cocktails all on tap? Yeah. So we're going to have draft beer, draft wine, draft cocktails, which one of the last big projects I did at Hay Merchant was rolling out their, their, their draft cocktail program. So I got a lot of experience on how to do cocktails on drafts. So draft beer, draft wine, draft cocktails. We're going to do draft spirits, which is nothing new. You've seen that a lot. I mean, uh, Fernet on tap is a thing. And then 
we're going to utilize a from-the-bottle-by-the-ounce technology, which you've probably seen this in places like HEB. There's a couple different companies that make these machines, but they're basically a machine where you can plug a bottle into the machine, and then it uses uh, inert gas, either nitrogen or argon, to keep the oxygen out of the bottle, and you can pull from the bottle by the ounce. They're generally used for wine, but spirits work just as well in the same system. So Interesting. So kind of like an automated Corazin. Yes. So there's a company called Enomatic that, that makes this technology. And the reason we went with Enomatic is because they also are the only company that manufactures this technology for sparkling wine as well as spilled wine. So we will have sparkling wine available by the ounce from the bottle. And we'll have red wine and white wine available by the ounce from the bottle and spirits available by the ounce from the bottle. Now, I know it's still early because you've still got at least, I'd say, five or six weeks before opening. Are there any specific drinks or pours that you just already know that you're going to have? No, conceptually, what I would like to have. So the spirits on draft, which are going to just be, you know, pulling from a reserve keg in the back, that's going to be the stuff that we would normally consider in a cocktail bar, like your well and call products. So we'll have Wild Turkey 101 or, you know, Old Granddad or something like that as kind of like our well bourbon. And then we'll have slightly, you know, elevated bourbon also available on draft. Then the, the spirits that are in the bottle, because I only have eight of them because the machine only holds eight bottles. The, the spirits that are in the bottle are going to be whatever really high-end, really rare, really interesting stuff that I can find. And they're, they'll be priced by the ounce, so their prices will be higher. But it's going to be an opportunity for people to be able to get like a quarter-ounce pour of something that's metered and measured by a machine that is generally not available in such a small format and something that they might want to try. And so I'll be able to do a lot more aggressive pricing on that stuff. And then wine-wise, you're going to see something really similar. So I would love to be able to do Krug in the sparkling machine. And generally speaking, you're only going to ever find Krug by the bottle, but here's an opportunity for you to buy an ounce of it or two ounces of it at an appropriate price. The ultimate like try before you buy setup too. Like if I'm considering like I might want to buy something for my home, I could come there and try little pours until I find something I like, and then be like, oh okay, this is the one I want to buy for the house. Yeah, I mean it's just stuff too. It's like you know I, I really love more aggressive, crazy, experimental wines. I am by far out of all of the types of alcohol, I am the least. Uh, proficient as far as my wine knowledge goes, but I love to drink it and I love interesting, weird stuff. So the problem with doing something interesting and weird, like a sparkling orange wine from Greece in a by-the-glass program at a normal restaurant, is you're never going to sell that whole bottle before it goes bad. So you're going to be losing money, first of all. And then second of all, that stuff tends to be more expensive and not the type of thing that's going to be done in a by-the-glass program. So you're relegated to doing those solely by the bottle, which means that people aren't going to try you know, new experimental stuff because it's expensive and they have to commit to the whole bottle. But here's an opportunity to try something that you might not ever try and 
only can make an ounce. Yeah, and unlike you, I like experimenting with orange wine, natural wines, but the truth is that there are some of those I really love, and some of those I'm like, hmm, this is a little too funky for me. Yeah. But you can have that low-risk adventure you know, shoot the moon because you can just get little pores, little tastes. Yeah. And then the beer program is going to be pretty in line with everything we've seen from me in the past. It's going to be super craft-centric. It's going to definitely have a local presence, but I'm also going to put really well-established national craft brands out there, too, because I think they're amazing. The beer program will be slightly smaller than, say, what I did at Haymersian or what you see in other big beer bars. There'll only be, I think, it's about 30 selections of beer total. But I also think that there's not a huge need to have a 100-tap draft beer system. You can put together a really badass beer program in, like, 30 beers. I remember years ago when Underbelly was still open, there was a fantastic craft beer dinner with Sierra Nevada. Yep. And there were was stuff there like Sierra Nevada. Yeah, it's kind of a larger brand, but there were some great bottles oh, yeah. that I don't really see much yep. anywhere. And, you know, so Sierra's a great example. That's a brand I'm definitely going to carry. I've got a very good relationship with the guys that work for that company locally. Uh, I'm also friends with Brian Grossman. You know, his family owns Sierra Nevada. I've got a mad amount of respect for that brewery and for that family and what they've done for American business and American craft beer. And so they're definitely going to have a place on my wall. But then I'm also going to have, you know, local stuff. Again, it's going to be hugely relationship-driven. Brock and I have known each other for a long time, and I really respect St. Arnold's. So St. Arnold's always going to have a place on my wall, too. It won't be as rotational as what I've done in other places. Like Hay Merchant, we rotated beer all the time. We're constantly just like one keg of this, one keg of that, one keg of this. This will be a lot more stable. So there'll be some rotation, but it'll be more on a seasonal basis. But it's going to kind of be a lineup of just really reliable, consistently good local and craft brands. Now, we can't stop this conversation until we talk about the food. Yes. So tell me about the food program. So Dax and I have been friends for a long time. The first Dax, Dax McNear. Yep, Dax McNear. We've been friends for a long time. Our first job we had together, he was the executive sous chef at Beavers, and we've worked off and on together for, for years and have been really good friends. And I've always had a mad amount of respect for Dax because he's super talented and he, he knows how to make really great food. But he also has, like, very little ego. He's got no interest in being on magazine covers and stuff like that. He's got a family, he's got a wife and kids, so he's got responsibilities at home and he just likes to put out good food. And he and I kind of approach food in the same way, which is this idea that it should just be good and it should be from scratch and it should be fresh, but it doesn't have to like change the world or reinvent the wheel for no other purpose than trying to reinvent the wheel. And so what we're doing with the food program at Shoot the Moon is, we're, is we're, we're nesting it in that foundation. It's going to be chef-driven. It's going to be from scratch. It's going to be fresh. It's going to be local when it makes sense to be local. It's going to be approachable to the consumer and familiar and friendly. And it's going to be built around my favorite food of all time, which is pizza. About a third of the menu is going to be pizzas. And all of those things that I talked about are going to find their way into the pizza. So Dax and I have been trying to develop our pizza crust recipe for as best as we can develop something like that in our home kitchens. 
Um, and then about a third of the menu is going to be smaller plates. These will be things that a lot of people consider appetizers. And there'll be expected stuff. There'll be things like chicken wings and chicken tenders. But there'll also be some unexpected stuff, like we're playing around with buffalo crab legs. All of our conceptual menus on the website right now, people should check it out, understand that almost none of that has been made in a commercial kitchen yet. So we might find that some of these great ideas don't work. And then the last part of the menu is going to be probably what I spend, even though pizza is my favorite food of all time, I'll probably spend most of my time eating from the third section of our menu, which is our lighter, healthier fare, which doesn't necessarily mean only salad and only diet items. There will definitely be salads on the menu, but my wife and I do the whole 30 every year, and I generally try to be as keto and paleo friendly as I can throughout the rest of the year. So expect to find some very chef-driven and composed dishes on this third section of the menu that are amazing, but have an eye to those kind of low-gluten or gluten-free, Whole30 compliant, keto, paleo-friendly items. So that's going to be our menu in a, in a nutshell. Well, that's great. I'm glad to see Chef Dax kind of coming back into the, the scene too. I'm going to ask you a couple of bonus round questions. Okay. <laughs> and these are going to be on general industry topics. I know you're very thoughtful and you just think about things a lot. So I would be surprised if you didn't have some opinions on these. What do you think right now about the fact that bars are having to be closed due to COVID? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'm of two minds of that. I think that statistically speaking, looking at if, if your goal is to increase social distancing and decrease large gatherings and things like that, then I guess closing bars makes sense. But other than that, I don't agree with this idea that somehow bars are any different fundamentally than a lot of other businesses that are allowed to operate. And I think what we're really seeing here, especially for those of us who have been so involved in the high-end segment of the industry for so long, is we're really kind of seeing what the politicians' opinion of the hospitality industry truly is. We think that we're amazing and that we're great and we do amazing and great things because I think we do. All of the amazingly innovative things that you've seen come out of the hospitality industry over the last years and everything else. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, politicians don't look at bars as anything other than an optional sin-based luxury. And I think that's a huge, huge shame, A, because I think it's going to neg- negatively impacting the cultural fabric of our community, but B, we are a service and hospitality-based economic system, no matter how you want to slice it. We have, that industry employs a ton of people. And by forcing these people out of the workforce, you're not benefiting anyone. I'm of two minds of it. I kind of understand the science behind the thought, but I also think that if you want to apply that same logic that I think holds true for closing bars, then you need to apply it across the board. And there's other businesses that could also be shut down. 
I'm not saying they need to be, but I'm saying that if you want to apply that logic, then they really ought to be. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly heard of restaurants with overcrowded bar areas or overcrowded patio areas. And it's interesting, you hit the problem with a sledgehammer when a screwdriver would do. When bars were open, there was a lack of enforcement. And so maybe this idea here is we don't have enough people to actually enforce and shut down the bars that break the rules. So what we're going to do is just close everybody. And that does seem unfair. I I understand the logic, like I said, to a certain degree, but I think it's definitely unfair. And it's going to change the face of the industry. Absolutely. My second bonus round question is there's been a lot of talk lately on social media about poor treatment of hospitality industry employees. We did an article related to this, I think, beginning of last week. You know, lots of complaints, lots of anonymous complaints. Is there something different or better that owners can be doing as far as human resources goes and payroll management? I think about this question a whole lot when I think about capitalism, period. And I've gotten into like a lot of big discussions with people over the years about the ethics of capitalism because I think there's some really good, compelling arguments on the opposing side against capitalism that talk about all the evil things that capitalism has led to in this country and all of the problems that the capitalist system has led to in this country. And those, I think those arguments are pretty sound. I, obviously, am a capitalist. Uh, I run my own businesses. You know, one of my favorite novels of all time is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. So I tend to really believe that, that capitalism is, is a great model. But what I've come to realize is that in order for capitalism to work effectively, it relies upon the ethical capitalist. Because the biggest danger of capitalism is because there is so little oversight that people are left to behave in whatever way that they want to behave. And if you behave in a non-ethical way, then the fruits of your behavior are going to have ethical problems. And so the biggest threat that faces capitalism is the actions of non-ethical capitalists. We can go all the way back in history and see examples of this. I believe this subject about fair wages and HR-related issues and everything else is effectively the same argument, that it's the result of non-ethical actors doing systemically non-ethical things that have made the system inherently an unethical system. So in order for the system to be ethical, it's depending upon the actors themselves to be ethical. And the thing about the independent bar and restaurant scene is because pretty much anybody can get into it if they want to. They've got the money, they've got the idea. There's no moral, ethical evaluation of those people. You're going to have people that, that do things that are not correct. You know, there's certainly an ethical people, and there's an even more, I think, benign reason, and that's people open bars and restaurants, and they're just ignorant of what that job entails. They don't understand that it's like unless you're going to outsource somebody to do your payroll, you're going to outsource an HR professional to be a third party to handle complaints. You wear those hats, and if you don't know 
how to do accounting and make a spreadsheet and, and what the law says as far as HR goes, you're going to be in over your head. Well, and I've definitely, like I said, I, I've learned, I, I go back and look at the way that we handled business issues and bookkeeping issues back when we first started our first concept. And we made a lot of mistakes, and they were not mistakes born of devious desire. It was just made from ignorance. And when we figured out that we were doing something incorrectly, we worked to come into compliancy. That's the other big thing is that I think that if you're mishandling payroll and you're not paying your staff right, when that's pointed out to you, if you immediately adjust and become compliant, and then if you explore how best to rectify the previous mistakes of the past, then I don't think there's really a lot to hold against that person. Yeah, that's just human. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, and we don't know everything. Yeah, people people will make mistakes. They'll do things that have negative impacts on other people, and they didn't mean to do those things. And so if they work to fix those things, then I don't have any problem with it. For me, it's the people who know what they're doing is not correct and then continue to do it over and over and over and over again, and then even worse, they specifically target people whom they know are incapable or unlikely to report them or advocate for any type of change. Yeah. I honestly think that there there are those people out there and that they are the ones that kind of give the industry as a whole a bad rap. But you also have to remember that there is a ton of people in the industry. Like the population industry is huge. And so on a whole... I think the industry is full of good people who are trying to do good things and do innovative things and make people happy and are trying to make the industry better. But there are just a few people out there that that aren't. And I wish that more operators would kind of look at the bigger picture of things as well and say, okay, I know that this is the way the system works, the way that we pay staff, and that I'm totally in compliance and what I'm doing is totally legal, but is it the best thing for my staff? And then second, is it the best thing for the long-term stability of my business model, which is the conversation I have with my investors? Like, look, this service fee model, I think, is going to give us a much more stable workforce on the long-term, which means that our overall labor costs will be more controlled and it will be a better result for our bottom line if we do this thing. Yeah, and that distinguishes the owner who just says, well, I'm in compliance versus the owner who's actually thoughtful about their operations and who actually cares about the people who work for them. Right. Because the other thing, too, you got to remember about Shoot the Moon is that this is, a, is this is a multi-location brand that we're trying to develop. My vision for this is that we will have several Shoot the Moons throughout the Houston area within a few years. And so I'm looking to not just my success on Long Point and my success of my pilot location, but the success of the brand on a larger scale. So I'm trying to make decisions that give the brand stability over many years, not just over the next few months. Kevin, I always have the best interviews with you. Do you have anything else that you would like people to know about Shoot the Men? Keep a lookout for us. I'm I'm hoping we're going to see an October opening, but it's impossible to make those predictions in the world of COVID. 
So keep a lookout for us whenever we open. We'll, we'll make sure that we let everybody know. And also, we haven't gone live with our Next Seed campaign yet, but we will. And when we do, we'll put it on social media and there'll be a link off of our website to go to our Next Seed campaign. And so when we get that rolling, if you want to help support you know, pushing us over the finish line and if you want to participate financially in in this venture, you know, please do. And then visit our website, period. They've got a lot of information about what we are and who we are. And I'm super proud of it. Our design team, you know, Matt and Leslie from Letterstack Houston, uh, Sandra Cook from Coffee by Cook, um, you know, did an amazing job developing the Sheet the Moon website, and I'm super proud of it. Sandra's a great person. Sandra used to write for us. I I love Sandra. She's been a, a great asset for me in, in helping put the written word out and making me sound like a well-spoken and affluent <laughs> writer when I'm really not because I can't spell. So she's Well, you're a good speaker. It's great to get an update on Shoot the Moon and it's great to catch up with you. And I greatly look forward to being able to see all this innovation for myself. Thanks, Sadra. So keep us posted. All right. All right. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Kevin Floyd for joining me for that long interview. I think he handled those two bonus round questions like a champ, and he had no idea those were coming. But I hope that you found that this entire conversation gave you as much to unpack and think about as as it gave me. Thanks so much for joining me, and I will return with another podcast as soon as I can. Take care.